0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week, protesters shouted down author Charles Murray at Villanova University. This comes a month after students at Middlebury College in Vermont got violent during a Murray appearance while shouting, No KKK, No Fascist USA. Murray has been called a white nationalist and is especially controversial since writing a book claiming blacks were not as intelligent as whites. This was called the bell curve in the mid-90s. But the protest over Murray's campus appearance. Appearances ...are not unusual when the speaker has controversial points of view. This Thursday, Elizabethtown College is hosting their annual Ware Lecture... ...titled, Our Strange New Era of Uncivil Discourse... ...A Moral Psychology Perspective, with author Jonathan Haidt. Joining us is Dr. April Kelly Wessner. She's chair of the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Legal Studies... ...and has written about political intolerance and a lack of viewpoint diversity in higher education... I should also mention that Dr. Kelly Westner is on the, when I say chair, she's chair at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Kelly Westner, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: If you have a question or comment, like to join in our conversation, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Right, most of your research and most of what you've written about has to do with political intolerance, but let's look at the big picture. I mean. I don't think that anyone can deny that we live in a divided nation right now. Why?
1: I think there are a number of reasons, and and I think we're still trying to figure out why, but politics has just become very intensified. The stakes are very high. A lot of people point to social media and the way that social media communicates political divides and discourse. studies that show if you have a conservative profile, you receive very different news feeds and news sources than if you have a liberal profile. And so the sense is that we are increasingly living in echo chambers, where we can avoid viewpoints with which we disagree and surround ourselves by those that support us. And um, the psychology is we all want that. No one wants to S- ev- everyone desires to sit in a room and have the people around them tell them how right they are. That makes us feel good. And so that natural desire to be told that we are right and feel good, combined with some changes in our media, make it easier to live in these, quote-unquote, echo chambers.
0: But your research, most of your research, is focused on intolerance. Yes. And... Especially on college campuses. Uh, I mentioned the two appearances, the protest of, of author Charles Murray. Uh, the one at Middle, uh, Middlebury in Vermont, I mean, everything I had ever heard about Middlebury, the reputation, you know, beautiful campus in Vermont, mountains in the background, uh, probably, uh, you know... A liberal, mostly liberal student population. But when Charles Murray appeared there last month, and yes, I have to say last month, it is April now, uh, last month, I mean, it got out of hand. There was a column written by uh, the student advisor uh, from the uh, from the college who you know identifies herself as a liberal who was actually injured Because these protesters they had to they, he was shouted down They had to take it off a stage uh, in the auditorium where they were and they went to a room where they could do it Where it could just be streamed, but the students or the protesters uh, Found out where that was and it got out of hand Villanova last week, now it didn't, get out of, it didn't get as violent as it did at Middlebury, Middlebury, but still, Murray shouted down, called all kinds of names, and no matter what you think of Charles Murray, and obviously these people don't think a whole lot about his research and what he's written, but the man did not get an opportunity to speak.
1: Yeah, the, the woman that was injured, I believe, was a political science professor who was brought on to debate him. And so the college recognized that he was a controversial speaker, um, and so they organized this intentional back-and-forth debate with an alternative perspective, and that woman was assaulted. She ended up in the hospital with whiplash and a concussion um, as she tried to escort him off campus. Um, There was another instance in Canada at McMaster University. And so it's not just about Charles Murray. Um, What we're seeing is... Or the United States. Or the United States. It's spreading. So what we see is um, this type of response to anybody that is deemed to have a position that is offensive. And so... The McMaster case, um, a professor from the University of Toronto, a psychology professor by the name of Jordan Peterson, was shouted down. Uh, He was originally invited on as part of a four-person panel on free speech. Mm. The other three didn't show up after they received emails and threats of protests. So he shows up by himself. Students showed up to that panel with cowbells, air horns. And one of them had a megaphone, and they shouted over him and yelled insults at him until he, could know, he couldn't speak. No one could hear him. And so it's definitely what we would call political intolerance, um, not wanting people to be able to express themselves if you find their views offensive. And we started studying political tolerance. Um, Samuel Stauffer studied it in the 1950s, looking at how Americans responded to communists. And we found that tolerance towards communists was pretty low. But what he concluded was that the younger people were more tolerant than their parents. And so research on political tolerance since the 1950s concluded that we were just going to become more and more politically tolerant over time. We were going to allow people to express themselves even if we disagreed with them, which is really the definition of political intoler- of tolerance. Um, and people concluded that over time we were just going to get more tolerant through educational achievements and through generational replacement. This is the first time since the 1950s when we started measuring tolerance that we've seen this dip, where young people are now less tolerant than their parents. And so that change in the the trend is what concerns a lot of us in the social sciences.
0: All right. So you've done research on this. Why?
1: Uh, I I think there are a number of factors. Um, I think there are a couple that the data starts to point to as... um, you know, the possible drivers of this, one of which is that lack of exposure to viewpoint diversity that we talked about. Social psychologists have shown that if you're exposed to people with whom you disagree, you become more tolerant. And so we've known this for for several decades. Um, When Samuel Stauffer concluded that we were going to become more educated as we became more tolerant, he said it's because education exposes you to viewpoint diversity, and he talked about the benefits of being around people that think differently than you. College is supposed to be that environment, and yet what we're seeing, um, one of my colleagues at Heterodox Academy, Sam Abrams, um, shows that colleges are just becoming more and more and more left over time. So in 1989, the liberals outnumbered um, conservatives on college campuses among faculty by two to one. In 2014, that's six to one. And there are pockets where it's much more extreme. So in New England, for example, where you have Middlebury, we're seeing um, liberal to conservative ratios among faculty of about 28 to one.
0: So is it just conservative speakers or those who have, uh, well, for example, uh, Murray has been described as a white nationalist, and there are some who dispute that, but uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, identified him as a white nationalist. Obviously, the bell curve was very mm-hmm. controversial, and there are a lot of people who dis- disagree with his research and his findings there, but is it mostly conservatives that uh, are you know, attacked like this?
1: It is mostly conservatives, but you would be surprised. There's a list of people who have not been attacked, but whose speech, whose invitations have been rescinded. So the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education keeps a, a log, a record of speakers who were invited to a campus and then due to threats of protest um, those invitations were taken back and and there you'd be surprised although it's mostly conservatives there's a mix of people on the left who for some reason or another have said something you know anti-muslim um, you know there was a, a woman who um, argued that, that Islam was not positive towards women. She was a feminist scholar. Her, her invitation was, was rescinded because of that you know, anti-Islam component to her talk. Um, so it, it, it runs the gamut. Um, I mentioned the lack of viewport diversity being a driver. The second driver that we can point to is a decline in civic knowledge and civic awareness. So people that have high levels of civic skills, high levels of civic knowledge are more tolerant than people who, who don't. Um. And if you think about the marketplace of ideas and what the marketplace of ideas is supposed to look like, you have to have some confidence that you can defend your perspective, your ideology in that marketplace of ideas. And what we're seeing is that people that think they know less about politics than others are the least tolerant. So, so they don't have the confidence to get in there and, and debate and, and hold their own. They'd rather just shut down those whose views they, they find offensive.
0: What's ironic about this is you're talking about, uh, you know, some of the most prestigious universities and colleges in this country. I mean, I saw an article in The Atlantic that you were quoted in uh, talking about uh, uh, Halloween costumes at uh, Yale University, where uh, there were a couple of, and identify themselves as liberal, uh, faculty members who lived on campus and basically said, you know, don't take, don't take this so seriously about what halloween costumes yes you don't want to do something offensive but at the same time remember what it's about maybe you can talk about it a little bit more but that that's the irony in this in that you know there are people who being offended seems to be the big driver of all this
1: i, I think that's right and The change, I think the big change now is that you see this coming from students. So there was a lot of talk in the 1980s and the 1990s about liberal colleges and speech codes, right? The debate over speech codes was all the rage in the 80s and 90s. But what was happening then is that restrictions on speech were being placed on college campuses by faculty and by administrators in that era. What you're seeing now is faculty, especially liberal faculty, writing and saying this is not the type of environment we have, that we are open to discourse, Um, and it's the students' Um, small groups of students, but but with some you know political cloud and some political weight, it's the students pushing for the restriction of speech on campus today, and that's a big change.
0: Well, what I started that question with, and uh, ended up asking a different question, but is that you know these universities, you would think that uh, some of the best and brightest students would have some civic knowledge, and you know obviously that's something we try to do here at WITF. Is it's part of our mission is to have a conversation about. Uh, civics and civic life, but you do see that in America today, not just a- amongst college students, obviously. This past election showed that it is widespread on both sides of the aisle, but these students are not getting educated civically?
1: Uh, I think that we have emphasized STEM skills, um, math, science, engineering. Um, in 2013, we stopped the national standardized testing on civic skills. Um, In 2010, when students took that exam, um, three-quarters did not score proficient. So in the K-12 system, we have seen a de-emphasis on civic skills. The American Council of Trustees and Alumni did a survey of colleges and universities. They looked at 1,100 liberal arts colleges, including the the elite top schools you're speaking of, and found that only 18% even require a course in American government or um, American history. So as we think more and more about science and technology and, educa- and engineering, um, our civic skills, our social studies, our history and um, American government are less, less important to most colleges and universities.
0: You probably are not the right person to ask this question because your students, for the most part, uh, obviously they're taking your classes, so they are interested in civics, they are interested in politics, they are interested in philosophy. But your observations on campus of today's students, what are they missing when it comes to civics?
1: Um, they're they're mas- missing some basic knowledge. And so just understanding the process, even understanding who at what level of government does what. Um, half of eighth graders surveyed don't know what the Bill of Rights does. Um, and so when they get to college, they have low levels of civic knowledge. They, they aren't getting it in, in high school like they used to. Um, There are big differences across disciplines, though, as I'm sure you can imagine. So connecting that to the political tolerance question, um, my students in my research methods class at Elizabethtown College do a survey every year. Every once in a while they're interested in tolerance because they know it's something I study and they get excited about it. um, And they find disciplinary differences. So our political science students were the most tolerant on campus the last survey because they are used to debating politics. They have a tolerance for debating politics. Um, those that are less tolerant tend to have very good. Um, they they mean well. They have they have very good goals. They want to reduce conflict. They want to um, reduce hurt feelings. These are students that grew up in an era where we really emphasize, you know, anti-bullying campaigns. And so, somebody you know being hurt by somebody else's words concerns them. Um, and they are well-meaning, well, well meaning. but I don't think they've gained the appreciation for the value of free speech and dialogue and how that's been used by the very um, progressive um, groups that they support. Um, without free speech, the civil rights movement wouldn't have gotten where it did. And so they don't have that historical context of how free speech has been used um, by minority groups to defend and protect their rights.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk in just a few minutes. We're going to answer your tax questions ahead of the April 18th. Yes, the April 18th federal income tax filing deadline. Uh, so we'll answer your questions coming up in just a few minutes. But right now we're talking with Dr. April Kelly Wessner, who is chair of the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Legal Studies at Elizabethtown College. She's written about the political intolerance and the lack of viewpoint diversity in higher education. If you have a question or comment, one 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to SmartTalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter. We are at SmartTalkWITF. Uh, Dr. Kelly Westner, for the most part, the, the students who are protesting here, uh, what are they defending? It seems as though most often is uh, it's people that they uh, see as marginalized.
1: I think for the most part, that's correct, and so they see it as protecting their campus from hurtful, offensive, racist um, sexist comments.
0: Okay, what's wrong with that?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think they're, I, I think they're well intentioned, um, but I think what they lose in that is an understanding for what political intolerance does to a system as a whole. And so when we study political intolerance, what we find is that intolerance for one group is actually highly correlated with intolerance towards another group. So it's not just that we're not going to let those racist, sexist, homophobic people speak. When you decline or or when you deny the rights of of some people to speak, you deny the rights of others to speak. And so what happens is that people who say, I won't let racists speak in my community also won't let radical Muslims speak in their community. They're highly correlated. It's not just that the left is prohibiting the right from speaking, and the right is prohibiting the left from speaking. There seems to be this sense of, well, you know, to be fair then, anybody who offends anybody shouldn't be allowed to speak. And so then we get into the game of you know, having to decide who gets to decide what's offensive. Um, the Charles Murray example is a great one. You know, he was there to speak on a completely unrelated book, something that the New York Times has heralded as, you know, one of the one of the hundred books that people should read this year um, about class division in our society. Um, students started chanting that he was racist, sexist, anti-gay. Um, he is pro-gay marriage. So, so... It's not even clear that people have a a full appreciation for who they are protesting or what they stand for at times. Um, But we see what happens is if intolerance grows, even the people protesting start to perceive that there is less freedom um, of speech on campus and they are less likely to exercise their own voice. So there are consequences for intolerance that go well beyond just shutting down Charles Murray or the person um, that you're currently protesting.
0: But there has to be a line, though. I mean, for example, I, I, this isn't a college campus, mm-hmm. but uh, topics and guests that we host on this program, I mean, I would never have anyone on the program uh, to espouse hate speech. Uh, there may be say, some who would say, well, I, I'm limiting their free speech. I mean, there are there's a line there somewhere that you don't cross. Where is that? And that kind of goes back to what you're saying, who decides what's offensive?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, in... In some of these cases, in most of these cases, student groups have invited these speakers to campus. So, in some ways, you're limiting the speech of those student groups. So, what you really have is, is you know, one one group's rights or what they perceive as their rights, you know, conflicting with another group's rights. Um, you know, one of the one of the problems with deciding where that line is in higher education is that we do have this great liberal imbalance. And so, if higher education was this more balanced left-right, um, you know group of, of people having thoughtful dialogue, I think we could be trusted more to make those decisions about where that line is. But what we see right now is, a, is lack of public confidence in higher education, in part because it is viewed as, as this liberal space where conservative ideas are not wanted.
0: Let's take a phone call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air.
2: Good morning, uh, Scott. Scott Kelly Arch. Um, I have two comments basically. The first one is there's an old adage about keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. And that is so that you learn about your enemies, and I'm using the term loosely, enemies, so that you understand what their point of view is and how you can defend against it for your own point of view. The second thing is this whole thing seems to be based in political correctness run amok and the people that have pushed political correctness continually don't realize that one man's political correctness is another man's potential insult and in fact the way they reacted at middlebury which by the way my eldest son went to is an example of exactly the same way the kkk acts today against black people and how is that different
0: Mm. hey bill thank you very much for your call Doctor.
1: Um, Jonathan Haidt, uh, who's our rare lecturer this Thursday, talks about the necessity for what he calls a spirit of generosity. And it requires that when you approach somebody with whom you disagree, that you don't assume they're evil, that you assume they have good intentions, and that you honestly want to, to hear them out. And I think the public discourse outside of higher education has, has really helped contribute to this sense that you're locked in this death match against people with whom you disagree, right? Um, everything has become much more polarized, and people view the other side as inherently bad. And so I think we need to teach students to approach each other with this spirit of generosity
0: you know, Bill used the term uh, political correctness, and you heard this from many Trump voters in November. They said that, you know, what we like about Donald Trump is he's not politically correct. Now, uh, you know, there's have been there been much written about that, but, uh, you know, one of the things that you can say about Donald Trump, the candidate, and Donald Trump as the president, is he says what's on his mind. There are a lot of people who find that refreshing compared to Other politicians. I'm not here to talk about uh, Trump the man or Trump the, the president or anything like that, but what Bill mentioned is political correctness is something that a lot of people across this country look at and say that's a bad thing. It is keeping us from making progress.
1: I I think the fact that Trump's message against political correctness resonated with so many people is telling. And it's telling of what's happening with political intolerance in our society. You have a large group of people, mostly white, kind of middle working class, whose incomes had declined um, over time in, in some areas of the country. And they felt they weren't being heard. And they felt when they said something, they were labeled as um, you know, rednecks or, or um, racist or sexist. And so they, you know, Trump appealed to them because he was the first person in a long time to say, I hear you um, and I'm listening to your concerns. And so I think you had a group of people who, through political correctness, felt um, in a lot of ways silenced um, and Trump gave them a voice.
0: But that group as well. When they talked about those and those things and experienced those things, I mean, we all saw video uh, before the election last year at rallies where some of them became violent then. So and, you know, people who disagreed, who weren't Trump voters would be shouted down and feared for their safety. I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is that we saw it uh, kind of both ways here.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I think political intolerance is high on both sides. And so when we talk about political intolerance on campus, what we see is the left because that's who dominates the campus. But when we actually look at rates of political intolerance, um, the left and right are pretty close together right now in terms of their intolerance. this is a change, however, because it used to be that the left were the proponents of free speech. So if we look at the data 30 years ago, the left was much more tolerant than the right. What's changed is the left. They've dropped down to the, the levels that, that the right was previously at. Uh,
0: Dr. Kelly Western, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Talk a little bit about the event uh, Thursday night uh, with Jonathan Haidt.
1: So Jonathan Haidt will be on campus to talk about these types of issues, to talk about the lack of civility in our political discourse. Um, He is part of our, our, um, he is the where lecture in peacemaking. And so I think if you think about um, making peace, there's nothing more important right now than learning how to bridge our political divide.
0: And I think a lot of people probably would would agree with you there, but, uh, uh, you know, as I said in the introduction, we uh, have no shortage of examples on campuses where uh, people are shouted down and, uh, you know, unfortunately, a little bit, uh, you know, some examples of violence here in the last, uh, Berkeley and uh, now Middlebury. Uh, Dr. Uh, April Kelly-Wessner, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Coming up uh, tonight, I should say... uh, well, <laughs> Put it this way, if you just tuned in to the program and you'd like to hear uh, audio, like to hear uh, what we said on today's program at the beginning of the program or any program from the past, what you can do is go to uh, WITF's website, WITF.org. We have audio from previous shows on there as well. Uh, again, if you're just tuning in and you, you missed the first part of the conversation and you'd like to uh, hear the entire conversation, you can do that again tonight at 7 o'clock. So uh, be sure to tune Tune in, uh, WITF 89.5 at 7 o'clock tonight as well. I hear so many people say, oh, I catch it in the car at 7 o'clock when I'm driving home from work or I'm uh, taking the kids to uh, soccer practice or baseball practice or something like that. The deadline for filing income taxes this year is Tuesday, April 18th. Yes, April is normally April 15th is normally the deadline, but it falls on a Saturday this year, and Monday is Emancipation Day, a holiday in Washington, D.C., where the IRS or the IRS offices are located. So there are a couple of extra days. On today's programs, we'll ask and answer your tax questions. Joining us, Eric McCollum, a certified public accountant with Williams Humphreys and & Company, and John Steffi, a CPA and partner at Simon Lever LLP in Lancaster. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today.
3: Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. It's my pleasure.
0: And w- again, we have open lines to ask any questions about uh, filing your income taxes. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right. always like to start these conversations. Now, we're only... You know, two weeks away from the deadline. Uh, Many people have probably already filed their income taxes, but we wanted to get to those who uh, have waited until the last two weeks. So, John Steffi, what are some of the big changes that we're looking at this year?
3: Well, the first big change is is in Pennsylvania, where now you have to pay tax on the winnings from the lottery or anything you win at the casino. You're allowed to offset those winnings with the money that you've lost, but you still must. Keep that in consideration when you're filing your Pennsylvania tax return. The other big thing is more of a a procedural type of thing with all of the fraud and the uh, tax returns that are claiming credits that aren't there anymore or shouldn't be there. The IRS has really clamped down on that in many, many ways. Well, for Uh, example,
0: give me some examples. Well,
3: uh, if you are getting a, a large refund or if you're having an adoption credit or earned income credit or whatever your refund will most likely take longer to process because the IRS is going to pull those out of the system and take a closer look at them. I had a, a client earlier this year with a $20,000 credit from adoptions, and it took them almost 10 or 12 weeks in order for them to get their refund because the IRS made sure that all of the paperwork that we had submitted was, in fact, valid. So there's been a, a, an awful lot of fraudulent claims that have been satisfied by the IRS because they were trying to be efficient, and they've got a lot of bad press because they've paid out hundreds of millions of dollars that they shouldn't have. And so the reaction is that they're being much more cautious about certain things nowadays. Mm.
0: Uh, Eric, I I do have a a quick question. Uh, John mentioned uh, the the state and I talked about the deadline being the 18th for federal. What about the state? Is the state also the 18th? Same deadline, yes. Same deadline. Okay. All right. So let's talk about some of the other changes
4: uh, Eric, because we'll make this a a three-way conversation. We'll just join Mm. in. Absolutely. Well, one of the nice things is with 2016 taxes that we're filing now, there's not too much that's different. Congress, if you want to put it this way, did us a favor at the end of 2015 (laughs) when they passed what was called the PATH Act, and PATH stands for Protecting Americans from Tax Hikes. They put those nice little names on things to, to make it sound friendly. So there's not too much that's new for 2016 because when they did that at the end of 15, they made a lot of changes either permanent or for the next several years. Um, so probably the, the biggest change that we're seeing is the delayed refunds. And what the IRS is doing is um, to clamp down on that fraudulent money that's going out that somehow ends up overseas very quickly. They are slowing down returns that have specific tax credits on it. What the IRS did is they figured out the the people committing the fraud are targeting the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Additional Child Tax Credit, because those are what are called refundable credits. They come back over and above an amount that you had paid in uh, through your paycheck, and so they've slowed down the refunds on those. As a matter of fact, they weren't even processing those before February 15th. They were withholding all that. And they made some structural changes behind the scenes. You know all those forms that we get, the W-2s, the 1099s, right. that tell us what we've earned and what we paid. We're used to receiving those from our employers by January 31st. On the back end, the employers didn't have to file those to the government until either the end of February or the end of March. This year, they made those due to the government as well, the same deadline, January 31st, so the IRS can line all this stuff up earlier in the year and not let the money go out and have to chase it.
0: But before we go to any changes or uh, questions that you're asked, when you mention fraud, one thing I thought of right off the bat, and we have heard about it a lot this year, is there are, are people out there who are trying to defraud people out of their money by calling them, sending emails, claiming to be with the IRS, and we need this certain amount of money, Talk about that, John, how the IRS actually does communicate with your clients, with Americans, if, if they, it is legitimately the IRS.
3: The IRS will communicate via letter, and they will have a phone number that you may call them, but they will not call you. Uh, and so there's a, there's a scam out, and these people are very, very aggressive, where they say the sheriff is on their way, they're going to take them to jail, unless... They settle, and it's usually a small amount. You owe us $250, give me a credit card now, and I'll call the sheriff off. It scares people to death. I know I had one woman, I couldn't convince her that this was a a bogus thing. She packed up and went to her sister's for two weeks because she was convinced she was going to be arrested and and taken off to jail on these things. Mm. So you you won't get a phone call from the IRS, you won't get an email from the IRS, you will get a letter And if you wish to call them, there will be a number that you may call them.
0: So if someone calls or sends an email to you and says they're with the IRS, that is just bogus?
4: Unless you're working with a specific agent and you know it's that person, the IRS will not call you or send an email.
0: Okay. So I'm glad we settled that right up front. Let's take a phone call from Ellen in Hanover. Ellen, you're on the air.
1: Uh, Good morning. morning. My question is about Pennsylvania taxes. Um, My husband and I have only income from Social Security or from a pension. We have no earned income. Do we have to even file?
3: Well, maybe. Uh, You may want to do something, uh, if you own your own home and you're paying real estate taxes, uh, you may be eligible to get up to $500 rebate on your real estate taxes using a form called a PA 1000. And they will ask you for certain proof, and essentially what you'll do is uh, either well, what we do is we, we send a, a copy of the first page of the 1040, which you didn't submit to the federal government cause, or to the state because uh, you're not going to be under that tax income is taxed in Pennsylvania. However, if your income is below about $32,000, you may, in fact, receive a pretty nice rebate on your uh, real estate taxes here in Pennsylvania.
1: Okay, well, I, I think I've already checked that out, and our income is above that, that line. So do I even have to file or file with zero?
3: i would not you do not have to file in pennsylvania
2: okay
0: thank you very much for your call you know gentlemen i hear this all the time from people who are confused about whether they have to file or not uh you know especially people who are retired and rely almost solely solely on social security income Uh, without getting too far in the weeds when does someone have to file and when don't they have
4: to file Pretty much a a way to look at it is if your earned income uh, from pensions or wages or things like that are less than the personal exemption and the standard deduction. So if you're earning under the regular deduction amounts and your income's going to be wiped out, really no need to file unless you had some withholdings and you need to claim a refund. So
0: what are standard deductions now? You guys have to go to your papers (laughs) for this? You bet. (laughs) This is where the software helps us out a lot. (laughs) All right.
4: So the standard, and it varies by your your filing status. So if you're, you know, married filing joint, the standard deduction is twelve thousand six hundred dollars. If you're a single filer, it's half of that, sixty three hundred dollars. And then your personal exemption is four thousand and fifty dollars. So if you add those two up, uh, I'm not good at math uh, (laughs) on the cuff here, but uh, (laughs) who says he's not good at math. (laughs) I don't have my adding machine in front of me. So if you add those two up, uh, that's what's going to be wiped out from your income. And then uh, you don't need to file unless you're claiming a refund. Okay.
0: I joke with you, of course. I'm <laughs> Absolutely. making fun of your math We
4: actually are very good at math. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about filing your income taxes. The deadline this year is April 18th. Our guest, John Steffi, he's a certified public accountant and partner at Simon Lever LLP in Lancaster, and Eric McCollum, a certified public accountant with Williams Humphreys & Company. If you have a question or a comment, this is the time to ask that question. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can ask a question on Facebook, WIT's Facebook page, or Or on Twitter, we are at SmartTalk W-I-T-F. All right, we have a couple questions here from listeners who have emailed their questions. Dave asks, how can you claim alimony paid to an ex-spouse but can't claim any child support paid to support your child? Now, he may be asking about policy, but let's just clarify when when you're talking to alimony and child support, what is deductible and what's not?
3: Well, alimony is deductible. Uh, and the ex-wife, whoever receives the alimony, must pick it up as income. Child support is not deductible, and that's just the way that the law reads. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a a justification other than the fact that, as a parent, you have an obligation to support your children. And so they they consider that to just be part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's alimony, you're actually transferring income from yourself to your ex-spouse, and therefore, there should be a, a corresponding deduction on one side and a pickup of income on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donna
0: asks uh, I'm awaiting a corrected form 1095A. And need to apply for an extension because the government ACA marketplace has sent me an incorrect 1095A, which, by the way, was not sent to me until late March. I'm having difficulty contacting the IRS to request an extension filing until the government marketplace sends me the 1095A with correct information. What should she do? And then we'll talk about insurance and Obamacare in just a moment.
4: Yeah, probably the first thing is uh, I wouldn't worry about contacting the IRS at this point in the season. It's very difficult to do. Um, They're understaffed. Just file the form 4868, which is the extension for time to file, uh, either electronically if you're using software, or just print a copy off of um, IRS.gov. You can download the form and just send it in to get your extension to file your return. Um, And keep in mind that extending your return does not extend any payments, too. Those still need to be made by the deadline. But if you do file for an extension, you can get your returns in up till October 15th, and you get a six-month extension.
0: You can set up payments though, right? Yes. Yeah. How do you go about that?
4: So, um, You can either send a check-in with your extension, there's actually an option to do it right on there, or they do uh, have some online payments that you can go on IRS.gov and pay via online.
0: There has been a lot of talk In fact, it's uh, dominated the news The the last few weeks And that is uh, Obamacare It probably created some confusion Because there was so much talk About repeal and replace And the, the Republican bill As most people know uh, Was defeated So what we've had in place For the past five years continue to exist So John, let's talk about that There still are penalties Tax penalties For those who uh, who did not have health insurance this year?
3: What are they? Well, that's a, they are penalties, and I do you remember? It's at two percent of your adjusted gross income yeah, I think for this year we're at two percent, right? And then there are, there's a certain base amount as well. There's a lot of exceptions to that, however, so that there are you could claim that you can't afford it. You can claim some other things to try and alleviate that particular problem. Uh, I don't know that I've had anybody that actually had to pay that shared responsibility. Have you?
4: I have not. And, uh, and and one thing to keep in mind is the if you owe taxes, um, the IRS actually has no legal authority to collect that. You can simply pay your taxes and they can't come after you for that additional shared responsibility payment, but they can withhold it from a refund. So there's a lot of goofy things that go on with the way this bill was passed because they essentially put a social welfare program or an administration of, of a Society, societal benefit through the IRS, which they're not supposed to be doing. I uh. want to clarify that. <laughs> yeah. So, th- th-
0: by the way, and the th- the penalty this year is six hundred ninety-five dollars per adult and three hundred forty-seven dollars fifty cents per child. Uh, but. And that compares to 325 and 162.50 uh, for adults and children last year, but I, I was not aware of, and I wonder whether a lot of people are that the IRS can't come after you if, if it's just deducted from from your refund.
4: Yeah, if you choose not to pay it, they have no legal recourse. They can't garnish your wages. They can't put a lien on your property for that shared responsibility payment. They'll certainly try. They'll send you letters and um, things like that, but they, they can't come after you in a legal sense to collect that shared responsibility payment if you choose not to pay it. And some people, because they disagree with uh, the bill, they're choosing to not pay it. On
3: uh, philosophical, well, on philosophic political and, grounds.
4: Right?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, John, you say that you, you haven't had any clients that... Uh...
3: I've had clients that have not had insurance. However, they've always fit within one of the exceptions. So, I can't remember anybody that I've actually prepared a return for that we had the shared responsibility tax being a part of the final liability when we got down through it. And
0: mm-hmm. we, yeah. uh, we had a call from uh, Linda who asked, is Medicare considered health insurance?
3: Yes, Yes. when We have a lot of folks on Social Security and Medicare uh, that may not have any other insurance. That's considered health insurance as far as the uh, 10, 1040 goes.
0: Okay. So talk about that a little bit. How do you decide, uh, you know, or when you okay, let me put it this way. I guess the reason she's asking questions, the question is, do, if you have health insurance, whether you have to pay a penalty. If you use Medicare, you do not have to pay a penalty. That's true. That's true. So there's no there's no stipulation that you have to decide or figure out how much Medicare or how much medical insurance through Medicare you used when you know doing something with your taxes.
4: Yeah. And it's kind of as John said, there's a lot of exceptions to the rule. So if you have a a good accountant, they're probably going to be able to find you one of these exceptions to get out of this shared responsibility payment. But if you have acceptable minimum coverage, which is what it states in the statute, Medicare is one of those that, that qualifies you are exempt from any penalties. So you have your Medicare, any insurance through the marketplace, pretty much any insurance out on the open market is gonna qualify because it has to, uh, or there's some other uh, what are called medical sharing programs that are allowed under the law. So if you have one of those coverages, Uh, or plans, you're exempt from any penalties. This is your opportunity to ask tax questions ahead of the
0: deadline, two weeks until the federal income tax uh, finally deadline of April 18th. Our guest, Eric McCollum, a certified public accountant with Williams Humphreys & Company, and John Steffi, a CPA and partner at Simon Lever LLP in Lancaster, and uh, these gentlemen were scheduled through the Pennsylvania Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and we thank them for that. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Send an email to smarttalk at org if you have a question about filing your taxes. Maybe not this year. Maybe you're looking ahead for uh, something for next year. You know, that's, a, that's a, a question just popped into my mind. If you're... Um you know, obviously there's so much focus right now on the deadline and for 2016, you know, that's passed. It's pretty much over with what could be done for 2016. But while you're thinking about taxes for next year, what can people do to try to reduce their tax liability?
3: We talk to many people about um, looking at the contributions that you make. Make sure if you're taking stuff to Goodwill that you're monitoring that and so forth. For some of our self-employed people, we, we're trying to get them, convince them that it's a great idea to set up some kind of a pension plan so that you can take some of the money you're taking now and put it away, and you won't pay tax on it. You pay it in the future. The, there's parts of the code for businesses where you can deduct the first half a million dollars of new business or new equipment and so forth that you purchase, and that includes this year heating ventilation and air conditioning units that you might put onto your building. So if you're buying new machinery and equipment, you get the 100% deduction. That's a wonderful thing. If you don't want the 100% deduction, and even if you're buying used equipment, you can write off 50% of the value of that equipment in the first year. So these are the types of things that we talk about. Uh, you may want to hire a spouse, set up a pension plan for her. So now you can, you've can, you got a pension for yourself, you get got a pension for your spouse, and you can put away even more money. And I call it putting it up on the shelf, so that the IRS can't get it until you go to the shelf and pull it off and put it onto your pocket.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you're, you're, when you're talking about pension plans, for the most part, you're talking about like IRAs, for example, 401ks, those kind of things. One of the things, or a couple of the things, that have stayed the same this year are um, IRA contribution maximums, and the, the same with uh, 401k. Eric, what are we looking at as far as maximums go?
4: So, for your IRAs, um, for 2016, you can put in $5,500. Unless you're over the age of 50, you can do an additional $1,000. On the 401k side, I believe we're at $18,000. And again, there's a catch-up contribution for um, over the age of 50. Um, There are some ways to get more money in there. If you own your own business, there's some different plans and different strategies we can do. But primarily, those are what people are looking at as far as limits for 2016 and they're probably indexed for inflation a little bit for 2017. John, you know, something that I find interesting,
0: one of the reasons that I like having uh, the two of you on the program is because there are things that have changed, that were changed years ago, that people talk about and whisper about and still believe they're true, So, oh, I heard this, and things change so frequently, or maybe they just changed years ago, and because it's word of mouth, Everyone believes it. All right, so let's bring up some of those things. One, let's talk about offices, home offices. Um, you know, Often we've heard that uh, if you have a, a room in your home that is dedicated to uh, something you do for, for business, you do for a living, that you can write off, say it's one of eight rooms, that you could write off the percentage uh, of that and uh, everything you have in that room, everything that you use for that business or that hobby uh, that's making money for you, it's all tax deductible. That's not the
3: case, is it? Well, for home offices, if you, in fact, do have a a room in your house. If that's your main occupation, right? No. Well, when you say main occupation, yeah, I mean, most salesmen now are are being told to set up an office in their home okay and we do write off if it's a 10 percent of the living space in your home you're writing off 10 percent of the mortgage interest real estate taxes utilities and the other maintenance and so forth that you do at your home we're also writing off in the first year any desks chairs lamps anything that's in that office we will write off
0: okay but i guess what i'm talking about yeah. is the, the the people who you know maybe we have like a way the hobby or secondary
3: income okay. and you're talking about maybe the the um, Tupperware salesman that right. has two parties it, a year and wants to write off 10. Temper- that's exactly, that's a little exactly. bit no that's not a second business that's really just a sideline at that point in time and trying to write off a home office expense against two office part or two home parties that you have is is not legitimate okay there are some things you can write off though, right
0: I mean a percentage what are you talking about? For say, okay, yeah, I'll use your example. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Tupperware yeah. salesperson. Um, I mean, isn't there some things you can write
3: off? If if it's a, if it's more of a, a full time second job type thing, you get the home office, you can do that. But what we would do is, if you have snacks or so forth for the people, you're writing that off. Anything that's a direct expense associated with that business, we're going to write off. It has to rise to a certain level before we'll feel comfortable taking a home office expense deduction.
0: All right, let's take one more call here. Hello, you're on the air.
3: Hello? Yes, you're on the
0: air. Yes, my question is, uh, I understand you can take 10% of your medical expenses as long as it's uh, 10% of your gross wages and write off. Can you also include dental in on the med- med- medical expenses?
4: All right, thank you very much for your call. The answer is yes. Any medical expense that you incur, um, you can add up as an itemized deduction on your return. Once you exceed the 10% adjusted gross income threshold, it becomes an itemized deduction. That includes medical, dental, vision, um, sometimes equipment, and things like that. So any out-of-pocket medical can go into that category.
0: All right, let's take another call. Hello, you're on the air.
2: Hello, go go, go ahead. Am I talking to you? Yes, Mm yes, it's me. All right. Uh, I would just like the gentleman to address the Cadillac tax that's uh, supposed to be implemented and how it's assessed. You're, and you're who's talking going to be liable.
0: You mean on health care? Uh, yes. All right. Thank you very much for your call. It's referred to as a Cadillac ca- tax, and this was a uh, tax. This was was for those who had insurance plans that were considered uh, real good insurance plans, and they were going to be taxed. Is that the case?
4: We don't run into this too much, but it is the case. So, if you have a, a health insurance plan that's above and beyond what what the, the common person would have, so it is considered the Cadillac of health insurance. Um, the government does penalize for that, but it's pretty much, I believe, coming down on the employers, not not the employees. Um, So if you're the business sponsoring this type of high-end insurance plan, um, the government deems you to be out of line and you needed to pay a penalty on that. We only
0: have a minute or so left. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. I'm curious, I meant to ask this earlier, but uh, since we only do have a minute, John, what questions are you being asked most often this year?
3: It's a wide variety of questions that I get a lot. A lot of people are asking me, what can I do to reduce my taxes for next year? And there's no really magic bullet. It's a lot of just solid type of record keeping, making sure you know what's going on. Uh, the contributions are big, the pensions are big, uh, those types of things. Mm-hmm.
4: Eric, what about you? It's kind of more, I think people are coming to the point where they realize that the tax software or kind of doing it yourself doesn't always cut it, that, you know, the expertise can kind of outweigh the software and they're really looking for a relationship. Why Why do you provide additional value to me on your tax return? What can you do for me to help out? And we're kind of getting into those conversations and demonstrating the value of an expert versus doing it yourself.
0: Well, our guests today were a couple CPAs, Eric McCollum and uh, John Steffi. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today.
4: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: Coming up on uh, tomorrow's programs, proposals to stop
2: domestic violence. That's coming up on tomorrow's Smart Talk.